everyone. This is Shannon Balloon, and you're listening to the Middle Grade Matters Podcast. On this show, I talk to authors and publishing professionals about the world of middle grade books, from writing them and publishing them to encouraging kids to read them. If you're a teacher, librarian, writer, or reader, this is the podcast for you. So please follow us on your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Sally Morgridge, Senior Editor at Holiday House. Since its beginnings in 1935 as the first American publishing house founded with the purpose of publishing only children's books, Holiday House has published quality books that entertain, enlighten, and educate children. Known for having a deep list of timeless and award-winning books for children and young adult readers, Holiday House publishes the award-winning I Like to Read series of books for emergent young readers. As the senior editor at Holiday House, Sally loves working on books for children of all ages, and her list is mostly middle grade fiction with a select handful of picture books, nonfiction, and YA. Sally, welcome to the Middle Grade Matters podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. So I'd love to know, when did you first decide that you wanted to work in children's books? So I was lucky enough to have a fantastic public library in my neighborhood growing up with a great children's librarian. I can't say it was planted in my mind from that age, but um, I actually grew up going to the library more than once a week. Um, There weren't great preschools in my area. And so I, I stayed home with my mom and the library was kind of like preschool for me. Um, I'm sure I encountered many Holiday House books on the shelves without knowing it. And (laughs) so eventually, you know, I developed a love of books and reading. I became an English major in college. And uh, my junior year, I took a a short story workshop. And every week, you know, we would read our peers' work and critique them. And I quickly realized that I was much more interested in critiquing and thinking critically about my peers' work than writing my own um stories so um i loved the process of developing someone's work strengthening it and i just i didn't feel i had the creative bug needed to to come up with my own stories so i i did an internship at um an academic publisher at cambridge university press one mm-hmm. summer in college the children's internships were always uh, really competitive and it was hard to get your way in. Um, So after I graduated, I did the Columbia publishing course, which was a a fantastic way to, you know, hear more about other departments in publishing. Of course, I still had my heart set on editorial, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. hear about adult versus children's versus uh, university presses. And at the time I I graduated in 2011, eBooks were the big concern at that, at that moment. And I felt like not only did I love children's books, but there was there seemed to be more security in print books for children. I, I didn't see the Kindle replacing picture books anytime soon. So <laughs> yeah. it felt like both where my, my heart wanted to go and also a, a seemingly 
secure decision, as secure as any decisions in publishing could be. Um, (laughs) And I was lucky enough to get a job working the front desk and sort of being the office manager at Holiday House. I started August 2nd, 2011. Um, We were an 18 person company at that point. And I was told, you know, this is a job that people often take. And then after a year or two, they go work at other publishers because Holiday House is so small. There really isn't room to grow in this in this role. But I was very lucky to time my after about a year, an editor went on maternity leave and decided she wasn't going to return. So Mary Cash, our editor in chief, knew I was interested in editorial. I had been reading manuscripts in my free time. Um, for the editorial department, and I was I was able to to land the job of editorial assistant. Um, so the timing was really really lucky, and I sort of worked my way up the editorial ladder. And in 2016, I found myself an as- associate editor without much room to continue moving up. Um, we were still around 18 or t- maybe 20 people at that point. So I took a job at Bloomsbury Children's Books in the managing editorial department. So I was doing more, I was a production editor. I was liaising with design and production and editorial and doing more of the proofreading, copy editing, working with freelancers, keeping books on schedule. Um, And it was a great experience to work at another publisher. I learned that Bloomsbury, which I think had around 100 employees in the U.S. at that time, it felt too big to me. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a significant difference from, yeah, from know, 18 to, people, to 20. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for most people, Bloomsbury is still a smaller publisher. So yeah, um, yeah. But that was good for me to know. And I enjoyed the people I worked with. And within that year that I was at Bloomsbury, Holiday House was sold um, to our our current parent company, Trustbridge, and we expanded quite a bit. Um, I think within the next few years, we at least doubled in size. And I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many people are at Holiday House these days, although it's still under 100. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I, I returned to Holiday House. I really missed acquiring books and working directly with authors having the more creative side of of the job. Um, so I, I was happy to to have the managing editorial experience. And I do feel like it, it affects the way I work with authors and have sort of a big picture schedule in mind all the time. That's, that's really helpful, um, especially when working with very creative people who maybe don't have schedules at, at front of mind. Um, and so I came back in 2017 and have been working, growing my list ever since. Wow, that's amazing. So you, the company that you first started with, you're at, you, you know, there's a little break in there, but you're there now. <laughs> I, I call it my year abroad. I mean, it was not, <laughs> I was not, not abroad, but Bloomsbury is a British company and I was there for just under a year. And so yeah. it feels like, I, it does feel in some ways like I never left, but um yeah. But I did, yeah. and I, I came back, and I get to work for the for Mary Cash, the editor in chief, is still my boss, and uh-huh. I work with several people have been there that whole time, so it does feel like um, it's always been home. 
Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you really liked working for a smaller publisher. To you, what was different about a smaller publisher that really drew you to that environment? I think um, sort of there's a coziness uh, that comes with working at Holiday House and, and a smaller place and a feeling of, and, and this has changed as we've become, especially as Holiday House has um really broken into the more commercial market and our books have been uh, more significantly placed in, in retail uh, consumer facing opportunities, having books in, in, you know, in target, I have, I have a graphic novel that's going to be in target next year. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. um, that wouldn't have been possible in the past, but with that comes a little bit more of the, um, a business oriented drive, I suppose. But what has always been true at Holiday House is it's about publishing good books. And I think um, I just felt like the quality of the work was always there because there was this small atmosphere where Mary really trusts every editor. Um, You know, if you love a project, certainly there are there are hurdles to clear when you're acquiring something. But there's also a lot of trust in the editors to make a project shine. And, and, and I think that's probably, you know, depending on the imprint, depending on where you are, whether it's a big five publisher, I'm sure many other editors feel the same way. But um, I think it's harder to find that as you work at a, a larger company. Mm-hmm. So why children's books? I think it probably has something to do with that same coziness. Um, that that appeals to me about a small company. There are a lot of people who love the world of adult fiction. To me, it just it feels cutthroat and intense in a way that children's books, on its best day, does not. Um, and a, a love of of the books I read as a child, and um, I think there's like a nostalgia factor for a lot of editors, um, especially before I had children. I now have. You know, I have a three-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. And so I'm kind of rediscovering a love for children's books in a completely different way. But, um, you know, I know many people who work in children's books who never had children. And I think for them, it's really a nostalgia. Um, Most of us, for one reason or another, loved books as children and want to return to that special world. What is it like? reading a book that you worked on to your kids? Oh, it's awesome. Um, You know, my daughter is learning to read. She's in kindergarten. And one of the books that, one of the first books that she sort of saw through the whole process, so she would see it on my screen. And then she, you know, I I brought home an early copy. Um, it's a book called Owl and Penguin. And it's uh, one of those I like to read comics that we we developed a new line for early readers in comic in graphic novel format. Um, and Eleanor just adored Eleanor's my daughter. Eleanor adored mm-hmm. Owl and Penguin from the start. She would always ask, you know, can we can we look at the Owl and Penguin book on my screen again and again, the characters are so charming. It's kind of like a modern frog and toad but um it's really really simple the text is incredibly accessible for an early reader owl and penguin talk to each other there's no um text in their speech bubbles it's all sort of like emoji style 
icons. And so it's very decodable for a kid who's really learning to read, which is not true of many early readers. Um, <laughs> there was a great PW article a couple of weeks ago about how early readers are actually very difficult for kids who are just learning to read. Um, hmm. And so Alan Penguin um, uses this kind of innovative language, uh, visual literacy uh, for kids. And it always really appealed to Eleanor. And at ALA Midwinter this past January, it received a Geisel honor, uh, which was such a wonderful surprise. It was Vikram's Vikram Madan is the author illustrator. It was his first book with us. And we had already signed up quite a few more. So it was really validating um, for him to be recognized this way. And of course, my daughter was onto it from from the very beginning. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it gets a shiny silver Geisel sticker on it now. And uh -huh. when I brought home the first copy with the sticker, Eleanor was absolutely thrilled. And um, Vikram had a second Alan Penguin book came out this year. And a third book is coming out next year. And he's dedicated that one to Eleanor. So the whole, this is, it's just How been. special. Yeah. That is so great. <laughs> um, I would say that's just the prime example of how special it can be to be an editor with young children at home, to have a book that has impacted her and had a huge impact on my career too. It was really um, wonderful to be able to go to ALA with Vikram in June and, and see him receive the, the honor. So yeah, it's, it's unlike wow. anything else. That's amazing. And such a huge world of books just waiting for her. I'm sure yes. you're so excited for oh, her yes. to, you know, <laughs> as she slowly gets older and wants those, you know, middle grade books and you're going to be reading them to her. Yes. It's, it's amazing. Books so. that I'm working on now, some middle grade novels, you know, will be published in two or three years. And so it's, top of mind for me that, oh, Eleanor might be old enough to read this one when it comes yeah. out in 2026. Yeah. So I can't wait for middle grade. Oh, that's great. Wow. Um, so there are so many roles in children's book publishing, but you were, it sounds like you always were interested in editing and working on other people's work. Why do you think that is? Um, you know, yeah, it was, it's not that I like telling people what's wrong with their work. But I think the satisfaction of problem solving, um, and it is teamwork. It's it's not all me, you know, sometimes I'll have an idea and an author will say, I don't like that idea, but more gently. Um, and together we'll come up with something new. It, it feels a bit like a puzzle to me. Um, I often have a, a project that's, I, I'm supposed to be writing an editorial letter for for the author but I haven't quite figured out exactly what I want to say and it's just existing in the back of my head for a week or two and slowly the pieces come together it really does take me some time to um like a back-end work I guess before I start writing a letter or even doing line edits um and I think that the problem solving nature of the work has always really appealed to me and you're senior editor. Does that mean that you have a team of other editors that you're overseeing? Or are um, you still work, working just on your own, on your own list? I, it's, I love the spot that I'm in. I have an assistant editor who assists me and two other editors, uh, Grace Macaron, our executive editor, 
and Elizabeth Law, who is our backlist and special projects editor. Um, so Laura Kincaid works for all three of us. And Grace works only on picture books, and Elizabeth works on a lot of sort of unique projects. And then I work on everything. So Laura's job um, is working for three very different people, and she's phenomenal. But I don't have the sole responsibility of supervising her because she has Grace and Elizabeth as well. So it's a sweet spot. I have mm-hmm. someone to help me, and I love mentoring Laura. She's co-edited a few novels with me. Um, which is great to be able to have a little bit of time to give to her um, to show her the ropes. She's now acquired a few of her own projects, which is really exciting. But I, for the most part, sort of my work is self-directed. My day to day is, is fairly independent and I love that. Mm -hmm. So I want to know more about that, about what you actually do as an editor. So take us to the beginning. Like, does Holiday House only look at agented submissions or are they an open house? We are open. Um, yeah, we are one of the few publishers who is still open to unsolicited manuscripts. Um, we we get some physical mail submissions. Um, I will confess I am not reading those anymore. That's one of the things I do love about my role now is there are a lot of other people. We have, in addition to Laura, we have two editorial assistants, um, an associate editor and an editor, and they will they will have weekly or bi-weekly slush meetings where they sit around it and read some submissions. Uh, and we have an email account where people can send unagented, unsolicited manuscripts. Um, for the most part, I am reading agented submissions. I will occasionally, um, if I do like an SCBWI presentation, I will be open to submissions from the group for a short period after that. Um, and I do receive unsolicited manuscripts via email too. You know, my email is not really a secret. And so people will find me. I wish I had more time to read those. I'm usually looking at the pitch, the query letter. Um, you know, there are people who have previously published for one reason or another, they're not with an agent. And so, um, I do tend to give more time to those, but, um, I am mostly reading agented submissions these days and there are a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) That was my next question. So (laughs) how many, like, do you have an idea of how many you receive? I don't know, per day or per month. (laughs) I feel like on average I get maybe five or six a day. Um, But there are days, certainly there are slower days. And then there are days where I get 10 or 12 and it's like 10 that I really need to give time to, which is difficult. Um, and because I publish a little of everything, you know, 10 novel submissions is very different from getting 10 picture books. I tend to respond to picture books. I'm, I'm really timely about picture books. I, I don't, you know, I don't let them linger in my inbox. Um, and I've gotten better about, not letting novels linger either. Um, But it means for me, the first 10 pages of a submission are really make or break. Um, My taste is very voice driven. Um, So part of it is time, but also part of it is that I I think after 10 pages, I I usually have a, 
a good sense of the voice of the character or, you know, if it's told in multiple perspectives, at least, you know, one of the characters. And Mary Cash, my boss, always says, you know, there are a lot of, you can fix a plot. There are a lot of things you can fix, but you can't really fix a voice if it's not working for you. Um, And I agree. Um, For the most part, that's something that's kind of baked into the manuscript uh, from the beginning. And so um, because I have that kind of gut instinct about a project, I do try to respond fairly quickly. And it means turning on turning down books that have a lot of things going for it. But if I'm not in love with the voice, I know that I don't want to be reading this project 12 times, which is, you know, easily happens over the course of editing a book, if I don't love the voice. So the concept of voice is this very difficult thing for others to understand, including myself. It's, you know, you hear this concept, oh, they have a great voice Voice. or their voice fits this particular genre better. Can you help us understand what it is, at least for you, that makes you say, this is a strong voice that I want to work with? Yeah. um, And it, you know, it, it's definitely a combination of things and it isn't all technically voice, but I guess being a memorable character is something that goes into voice. Um, and this is what I always like to talk about when I do an SCBWI presentation or when I'm speaking to a group of writers, because uh, to me, this is how books become beloved um, and characters become kind of timeless. And I, there are so many different ways that an author can make their character memorable and um some of that is dialogue which is kind of the classic dialogue or inner dialogue or you know the descriptions that an author uses on the page or or the classic like voice tools but i think you can say a lot about a character um in smaller ways in details like what they wear um their like what they like to eat or how much they think about things like eating or their clothes or what their hobbies. Um, if they have a lot of flashbacks, you know, how, how characters think about the past or the, if they're a daydreamer rather than, you know, someone dwelling on memories um, that says a lot about a character. So I, I give a little talk and I have like a, a slide with all of these tools that authors can use. And I think Certain writers uh, are really skilled at using certain tools, and you don't need to use all twelve of them, right? You know, I can't remember. It's like some around. Tw- I list twelve things, and I like to tell authors to play to their strengths. So, if you're really, really good at writing dialogue, make sure that your character is having a lot of conversations. Um, if you're really, really good at um, relationships and building conflict in in and tension in relationships make sure that that appears you know prominently in the first 10 pages of your manuscript um don't bury your strengths and don't bury what is making your character memorable at the 50 page mark i want to see that in the first 10 pages so you know i i do a little case study in these presentations where I talk about five around five books um, where authors have done this really, really well. 
and we kind of look at excerpts from the books because it is voices. What is voice? It can Mm -hmm. just be, um, it can be crafted differently. And it's like, you know it when you see it, a great, a great voice is something that you'll always remember, but, um, figuring out how to get there can be done in a lot of different ways. That's fascinating. That's really helpful. Um, so voice is obviously very important to you. What else are you looking for in a submission before you would decide to, to say yes? I'm always looking for heart and a sense of humor. Um, I do work on some more serious projects and, you know, some coming of age stories, especially in middle grade can be pretty heavy, but I need characters to have a sense of humor. I, I don't, love characters that are overly earnest or sincere. Um, I think that's a reflection of my own personality. And um, my, I like characters who are a little bit self-deprecating and don't take themselves too seriously. Um, but again, you know, that doesn't mean the book can't have the serious elements and a serious topics and deal with big things. Um, but I, I am looking for a sense of humor in everything and, um, that memorable characters, you know, goes, goes back with the voice. I want to remember I have books that I've for one reason or another, not acquired. And I can still remember the characters, um, from 10 years ago. So, you know, that's what I'm looking for is a character that sticks with me and we'll stick with the reader. Um, of course, as many editors are these days, I'm always looking for underrepresented backgrounds and authors and characters and settings. Um, I grew up in New York City, so I'm always looking for more books that take place in cities. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> How important is the query letter versus the pages to you? The pages are more important. Um, I like a good query letter, but I also like it to be short, to the point. A really strong pitch is going to get my, like, you know, a strong one or two sentence short description is going to get my attention. Um, saying, and I do this all the time when I'm describing books. You know, if I'm going to talk about some projects with you today, I'll probably use the same thing where it's like, think Ghostbusters meets blah, blah, blah. Um, that's helpful to orient my head immediately around what this book feels like. But um, it's honestly more helpful when the references are not like, I don't, I'm not looking for a pitch that says this is the Hunger Games, you know, in 2023, because Everyone wants, you know, I don't know if The Hunger Games is the right example, but I'm not looking for a blockbuster comparison necessarily in the pitch. I just want something that immediately orients me to the feeling of the book. Um, But I really want to move to the pages because I always open the pages. If an agent sends me a pitch, unless it's like on a something that I absolutely find boring or offensive. I I can't imagine what would make me not open the pages, but um, I will always open the pages. So 
Yeah. How important are comps to you? I think they're really helpful for nonfiction. Um, I work on some picture book nonfiction and middle grade nonfiction and non nonfiction can often, um, you know, a manuscript comes in it's like, well, how are we going to package this? You know, is it going to be illustrated? Are there going to be photographs? Um, it's very open-ended. And so I find comps really helpful to sort of envision the final work um, or where the author sees it sitting on a shelf. I'm always going to do my own research on comps. When I bring up a project to acquisitions, we need to provide at least three comp titles that we think the book will sell like. And so sometimes an agent's usually an agent will say in their pitch, like if they provide a few comps, they might be helpful for me. But I find often that people will share comps that didn't actually sell that well, or, you know, some, some books get some great critical attention, but they're, they don't have the sales figures that I would need to, to make a case for this book at acquisitions. So, um, I, I tend to do my own research on comps when bringing a book to acquisitions. So I, I feel like they're not as important when pitching a book to me. Mm-hmm. Um, once you decide you really like this submission, you want to take it to acquisitions. Can you tell us what happens next? Sure. So usually I share it with um, the rest of the editorial department. Uh, we have a weekly editorial meeting and we send around submissions in advance of the meeting. So everyone has a chance to read at least a bit of the manuscript and then we discuss it at our meeting. And so that that's like my first batch of feedback and it has to go over well with my colleagues before I bring it to acquisitions. You know, there are often people who don't like a project or have some feedback on how to make it better. But in general, I'm like taking the temperature of the room. And if the consensus is, even if a project is really flawed, if people can see a path, and again, that comes back to the trust um, that our our editor in chief and our our supportive colleagues have for one another as editors, like, oh, I, you know, this project needs a lot of work, but I can see you doing a great job with it. We should go for it. And we do talk about comp titles in the editorial meeting. Um, It's good to kind of get the brainstorm, the group brainstorming before you bring it into acquisitions where um, it can be, you know, the people at our acquisitions meeting haven't necessarily read the manuscript. Usually they haven't. Um, Our general manager wouldn't have time to do anything else with his job if he was reading all the manuscripts we wanted to acquire. Um, So, you know, helping me to figure out how to position a book at acquisitions often happens at the editorial meeting. And then acquisitions is, is usually with our editor in chief and our general manager. And I'm giving reasons more business oriented and, and sales and positioning. Um, focused reasons for why we should acquire the book. But again, there is a lot of trust and um, our general manager has gotten to know all the editors and sort of our taste. And I think um, he can trust 
when one of us feels really passionately about something. So you really are taking that book to pretty much the whole company. Like there's yeah. buy-in at the highest levels before a book gets published, correct? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's, I can see how books sometimes, quote, die at acquisitions. Right. <laughs> you it, it, it does happen. Or, you know, if a book is, if it's an auction scenario, that can be very challenging, especially as a smaller publisher. We can't always um, match the advance being offered by a larger company. Um, and so we often try to have a phone call with an author or, or come up with a strong case for why publishing at Holiday House um, is, a, is a good and special thing. So after you've gotten buy-in from your team and you sign a contract with uh, your new author, um, what happens next? So I usually um, have a, a fun introductory email or phone call if I haven't already spoken with the creator. And um, depending on, you know, if it's a picture book, there might be some light revisions left to make to the text. Or um, if it's a novel, I usually get to work writing my editorial letter. So if it's been, if I have the time, it's always smart for me to start that editorial letter as soon as possible after acquiring a book because I've just brought it to the editorial meeting and heard my colleagues feedback on what's working, what's not, you know, they often provide like, oh, well, you could, you could change this in, in the plot. Um, so it is kind of helpful to, I used to be able, when I wasn't working on as many books at one time, I would just get started right away with my ideas all fresh in my head. Now it's like, okay, well, great. I acquired it, but I still need to finish these projects before I have time to write my editorial letter. Um, I used to be able to write like 10 page single space editorial letters. And um, I, I think I'm acquiring projects that are a little more polished these days. So that's part of it. But um, I also just don't have as much time to write really, really mega long letters. And I'm not convinced that it was actually helpful for an author to receive 10 pages of single spaced <laughs> ideas. Uh, so I usually will send the letter to the author, give them, encourage them to take some time to process my suggestions. I always layer in a lot of uh, mentions of what I love about the manuscript. Of course, you know, I can't imagine receiving a, a letter. Maybe this is why I knew I wasn't going to be a writer myself, but it seems tough to receive a letter filled with ideas of, of how to make your work better when you've already spent months, possibly years on, on getting it to where it is. But um, my authors are always so gracious and usually happy to receive new feedback. And so they might come back to me and say, oh, I have a question about this part of the letter, you know, can we talk about it? And we'll talk about it. And I'll give them a timeline of, you know, do you think you could get this back to me the next draft in three months and four months, um, depending on the extent of my suggestions. And they'll usually go off and work and I, I don't hear from them 
often in that time. You know, every author is different. And some people like to check in along the way and say, oh, I've just come across this section. You know, how do you feel about me working in X, Y, or Z? Um, I, I don't mind that at all. I like to hear from people. It's a little bit hard for me to switch the gears on and off. So like, I'm kind of head down in one project when I'm writing an editorial letter and then I have to sort of remember what it felt like to be in that world um, if someone contacts me six weeks later. So it can be a challenge, but of course I'm always there for my authors. So, uh, and then they'll turn in their next draft and that's often when I start line by line editing. Um, I'm, you know, these days I, even if I know we're going to do another round of sort of big picture changes where I might write them like a shorter version of an editorial letter, I still like to line edit after their first big revision because it helps me. I I don't know. I find it pays off in the long run, even if they end up making big changes to a chapter that I had already line edited or getting rid of an entire chapter or a section. Um, it helps me to be kind of more in touch with the work at that point. And most of the book is going to stay somewhat intact from that point on if they've done their job in the first big revision. And so I like to, to sentence line by line edit at that point. Um, and often at, at, after that first big line edit, you know, the author will review, we might have a few back and forths. Um, some authors have a tendency to have a hard time just finishing up. And so they'll end up wanting, you know, after we do the line edit, we accept all the changes. It goes off to copy editing. But in copy editing, um, they'll want to change a lot of other little things. You know, they'll get the copy editor's corrections and they'll be reviewing them but they'll end up making a whole bunch of changes and then some authors are very like this is done you know i i and feel confident at the the finality of that moment um it can really change depending on a, a writer's personality so how long does it take from the time that you acquire a book to the time that it hits shelves is it the same for every book or does it differ is there sort of a general idea of how long this process takes I'm usually for a novel acquiring about two years out. So um, let's see, I just signed up a book like about a month ago and it will publish in the fall 2025 list. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to start my editorial letter in early January. Um, the author we're planning on um, about nine or 10 months for revisions, including, you know, it'll start with her and then I'll come back to me. And I usually take at least a month or two to get back to an author after they've turned in their revision, because I am working on a number of different projects and line editing takes me a very, very long time. Um, so yeah, I would say about a year of editing and rewriting and then from that point on, it takes a full year from a final manuscript to publication. So how many projects are you working on at any given time? I'm now editing around 14 or 15 books a year. Um, and part of that, you know, I've just grown 
my list, but I'm also working on a wider variety of books. I used to work on pretty much all middle grade and YA, and I am now working on some picture books, which tend to take less time to edit. Um, And I also just love them. (laughs) Again, that comes back to having my own children, I think, and a newfound appreciation for, for picture books. So what do you enjoy most about your job? Definitely that problem-solving aspect. Um, I'm surprised by how much I love the relationships that I've built with authors over time. Um, I don't think I really understood that when I was starting out. I would see, you know, senior editors at Holiday House have authors come in for lunch and, you know, have these relationships that I, I just didn't get it. And now, Mm -hmm. especially with authors where we've worked on three or four books together, I really do understand it. Um, And I I treasure that part of it. It's a very intimate, working, creative back and forth. Um, And I love that. So I'd love to hear about some of the projects that you're working on right now. Sure. Um, So two books that came out this year in 2023 that are both middle grade and very dear to my heart. Um, one of them is The Carrefour Curse by Diane Salerni. Um, and that was my third book with Diane. She had published a few books before coming to Holiday House. Um, and I knew this was Diane's best work with us yet. Um, so I was really excited. It published in January of this year, and it got three-starred reviews. Um, some exciting news coming out in the next few weeks about a, a best book feature somewhere will be <laughs> shared. Um, and it's kind of like The Haunting of Hill House for preteens. Mm-hmm. It's about um, a family that has magic in its blood and the house sort of decaying ancestral home of the family um called crossroads house and it's got i mean the opening lines the main character is vomiting frogs which is just about as fun and unusual as an opening um that i've ever come across and diane's Diane is so talented. She is, I think, one of the most underrated middle grade authors working today. Um, so it was really fantastic to see the book get get these great reviews. Betsy Bird did a, a wonderful blog post about this book um, back in June. And she was basically like, Betsy writes books herself and she was like I am jealous of Diane's abilities to just be so darn good it's a mystery it's Mm -hmm. funny um it's compelling uh it's just got everything for middle graders and Diane and I have another book coming out in 2025 that's the one that just went off to copy editing and she's definitely one of those authors where I treasure the relationship um and I think as much as I thought the Carrefour Curse was the best yet, I think her next book is going to be even more special. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another middle grade that came out this year is 102 Days of Lying About Lauren um, by Maura Jortner. And 
That one can definitely be described. I mean, it's it's a really wacky, one of a kind premise, but it's sort of like the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie Frank Weiler. But instead of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, it's Disney World. I mean, it's not set technically in Disney World, but it's basically mm-hmm. Disney World. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a girl who was abandoned by her mother at an amusement park and has been living there sort of under the radar, posing as an employee for 102 days. Um, and she's crafted this very livable, untenable, but livable um, daily life, living in the haunted mansion um, ride attraction at the park. But a hurricane hits and she's completely, you know, the park is evacuated and she's left. So she thinks on her own, she has to sort of decide is she going to reveal her very precarious situation to be safe from the hurricane? Um, or is she going to try to stay undetected? And that that's a book where the voice completely knocked me down in the first few pages. Like, just really, really unforgettable character. Um, quite an elevator pitch for a kid living on their own in an amusement park. Mm-hmm. And again, back to the relationship with the author, um, I took my family to Disney World for my daughter's fourth birthday in March 2022. And Mora, the author, happened to be visiting Disney World the same week with her family. So I got to meet Mora for the <laughs> wow. first time. At Disney World. At the park, yeah. While working on a book uh-huh. um, set at, you know, a yeah. huge amusement park. So that one came out in June of this year. Uh-huh. Um, and this is no longer secret. It is a shelf awareness best book of the year, which was really, really lovely. Um, it was a debut. It was Maura's first novel. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, I think it's going to be a kid favorite. You know, I really hope it ends up uh, going up for some state award lists because I think there's just so much kid appeal in that premise and in Mouse is what the main character goes by in, in Mouse's um, world. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it received a, a star review from Shelf Awareness and it was one of their best books of the year. And I'm so glad they they saw what I saw in it. Um, and I have another middle grade book with Mora coming out in summer 2025. So, um, yeah. And then I have two upcoming middle grade, um, projects that I'm excited about. One is coming out in February and it's called not the worst friend in the world by Anne Relihan. And it's her debut novel just got a starred review in Kirkus, which is really exciting. Wow. Kirkus is usually the first review to come in. And so mm-hmm. it really sets the tone when it's a when it's a good one. And in this case it was a starred review. So I'm really excited for Anne, who had her fourth child last year, right as we were wrapping up um copy edits and the wow. design. So yeah. um she's amazing, obviously. Yeah. And it is, in contrast, the setting is a little bit ordinary compared to Care For and 102 Days, but it is a book that pays homage to Harriet the Spy, which is probably my favorite middle grade book 
of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a girl named Lou who has completely ruined her friendship with her best friend, Francie. They've known each other their whole lives. They go to a, a small Catholic school. It's set in Missouri. And so their classmates have always known them as Lou and Francie, Lou and Francie. Um, and Lou has done something and said something horrible to Francie, which is kept a secret from the reader for most of the book. And she has completely screwed it up. And a new girl has come to their town and is in their sixth grade class, um, Cece. And so Cece asks Lou for help. And Lou sees this as an opportunity to sort of win back, to to prove that she can be a good friend, that she is not the worst friend in the world. Um, And Cece believes she's been kidnapped by her father. So it starts off with a, there's a great hook, you know, Cece passes Lou a note saying, can you help? Like, I have a secret. And Lou sees this as her chance to prove that she can keep a secret, that um she's that she's a good friend and she hopes to help Cece, but she also hopes to win Francie back um so it's a real it's a, it's a coming of age story it's about complicated friendships especially those complicated female friendships that happen in middle school um that's a soft spot i have as an editor is like middle school girls <sighs> mm. it's a t- tough time and i know mm-hmm. i I made mistakes and, you know, I probably wasn't the best friend in the world. (laughs) Maybe not the worst friend either, but um, (laughs) books that explore that really powerful, those friendships that feel like the most important thing to you. um, I love that. So um, Anne's got a great voice, got this character who is brutally honest in the same way Harriet the Spy is. Um, Lou keeps a a journal, a notebook that is eventually discovered by her peers, much like Harriet. Um, And she she has the same kind of curious, investigative spirit. Hmm. That sounds so fun. It's, It's good. Yeah, really interesting. All right. Any others? And then, yeah. The, so the last project I'd love to tell you about is um, summer 2024. So we are, <clears throat> I think they just revealed the cover for the book. It's called The Ghost Rules by Adam Rosenbaum. Um, and it's about a boy who discovers he can see and talk to ghosts we'll call it supernatural ish because it's very humorous. It's got a dark, not edgy, but just kind of black humor to it. Um, The boy Elwood has lost his older brother who died about six months before the book begins. um, And before Elwood discovers he can, that he has ghost sight. And so at first, Elwood's like, well, why do I have to see ghosts? They're actually pretty annoying as go- as ghosts uh, are around for more time. They become more disoriented. They drool. Ghost drool is pretty disgusting. Um, <laughs> and he he sees this this new ability as um, 
irritating, frankly, mm-hmm. until he realizes that he might be able to use it to talk to his brother one last time. Um, so it's got a really a meaningful undercurrent to a very funny, um, sharp uh, writing style. And it's Adam's debut. Um, he is a, just a fantastic creative guy who is diving headfirst into Kidlet. Um, you can see three of the four books I'm talking about are debuts. So I mm-hmm. do really love to discover yeah. um, to discover the right middle grade, you know, voice in in a new author. Um, and yeah, three of the four are also about female characters, but Elwood is a great boy character. We hear from a lot of librarians and parents. They're looking for good boy books, um, things to keep boys reading as they sort of transition out of Dogman, Diary of a Wimpy mm-hmm. Kid, you know, all of the the classic series. Um, and I think Elwood is a, is a really funny, great, great protagonist. So Sounds great. So do you have a favorite middle grade book of all time? So I, I kind of gave away my answer. You kind of did. It, it yeah. is Harriet the Spy <laughs> okay. by Louise Fitzhugh. Um, Harriet spoke to me as a New York City kid, as a kind of nosy child who lived in an apartment building and liked keeping tabs on my neighbors. Um, and I think her the brutal honesty in Harriet's observations about about her neighbors, but also about her classmates and the way that she learns. I, I don't think Harriet really changes her nature throughout the course of the book, but I think she definitely gets a lesson in um, what is to be kept private and and what is to be, you know, what it is to have inner thoughts and not to turn off that that part of you, but also what it means to be a sensitive, good friend. And, you know, she says some things to Sport and Janie, her, her two best friends that are so hurtful. And I think she's not intentionally hurting them, but there's just that honesty that kids grow out of. So it's, it's a coming of age story, but it's just, she's a memorable character. That's a voice. That's a, Mm -hmm. that's a personality that sticks Mm -hmm. with you. Like she's one of the books, the case studies that I like to, to share. in when I do a presentation on, on memorable characters and, um, things that stick with the reader, um, Harriet's fixation on, you know, she has a, a love of tomato sandwiches. I don't know if you remember this about Harriet, but Mm-mm. in the book, um, her family has a, a cook, a, mm-hmm. like a live-in cook, and all Harriet wants to eat is tomato sandwiches. Um, so that's like a way, that's such a memorable detail. On yeah. the other hand, like her clothes are not important to her at all. She's not like a lot of other characters um, in middle grade have a, a uniform or taste when it comes to clothing, but that kind of stuff does not matter at all to Harriet. And and all those little things come together Mm -hmm. to make little ingredients that make a very memorable um, heroine. It's neat to hear how you as an editor are, how you analyze even books that you haven't worked on. Yeah. (laughs) I bet you do that all the time, don't you? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what right now is bringing you joy? 
Hmm. Well, I love, I do love sharing books with my daughter. And, you know, as we're getting into the, the, the early reader format and she's growing out of, um, you know, she'll call board books, baby books now, and we'll still read picture books, but she's, she's definitely showing more of an interest in series like Princess in Black or, um, the Sir Ladybug early reader graphic novels have been a big hit lately. Um, so getting to discover new books, share books that I've edited with her, um, those are all that's bringing me joy these days. It's so special. Um, what advice would you like to offer new writers? I always beg new writers to read like as many new books in the genre, in the age group, in the format that they want to want to write. Um, I think, as I said earlier, a lot of us are interested in kid lit because of the nostalgia we have for, you know, the books of our childhood. But what we're publishing today is not the same. And I think people, um, need to know what's working, what kids are responding to, and just be more forward thinking in, you know, what, what you, what you're writing now has to still be compelling in three years, um, in five years, if you want your book to stay in print. So, um, I'd like to tell them to go to the library, um, ask the librarian what's flying off the shelves these days. Um, or a bookstore if you have the means, but the library, you know, you can check out as many books as you want and read them, analyze what are the tools these authors are using to make their characters stand out, for example. Um, And talk to kids if you can, if there are kids in your life. Um, Ask them about their favorite books and, and, and what is speaking to them. That's great advice. So one last question. Where can our listeners find you online? Oh, yeah. Well, I am on Twitter slash X mm-hmm. um, at S Morgridge. So M-O-R-G-R-I-D-G-E. Um, I'm not on Instagram. And to be honest, I, I'm still hanging on on Twitter, but I don't know what the future holds. I, mm-hmm. I am on blue sky as well with the same username mm-hmm. i'm i i don't think i've shared a single post on blue sky yet but um i'm getting my feet wet and still clinging to the remains of the kidlit community on twitter sally best of luck with your titles that are out now and then the ones that are coming out and with your busy schedule i just i wish you the very best and thank you so much for being on the show today Thank you, Shannon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having this space for middle grade and for KidLit um, and highlighting so many wonderful authors. Thanks for listening to the Middle Grade Matters podcast. I'd like to take a moment to thank our audiobook partner, Libro FM. With Libro FM, you can choose from more than 400,000 audiobooks and see lists of audiobooks recommended on the Middle Grade Matters podcast. For more information, go to Libro.fm slash Middle Grade Matters and enter the code ChooseIndie for a free audiobook with a paid membership. If you're enjoying the Middle Grade Matters podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.
and tune in again for more great episodes. I'll see you next time.